Have you ever been convinced that beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were right about something only to be proven wrong? Since I uh, can't remember such a time in my life, uh, let me tell you about my father-in-law's favorite story about Lindsay when she was a young child. As you know, Lindsay's from Alabama, where only one sport matters. She grew up on a steady diet of football and football only. But when she was five or six, her dad took their family to a, a Birmingham Barons minor league uh, baseball game. And of course, in the middle of the seventh inning, what happens? All the fans rise to sing, take me out to the ball game. And, and many of the fans start exiting the seats to get food or use the restroom or whatever. And, and Lindsay said to her dad, hey, it's halftime. Her dad gently responded, no, honey. Baseball doesn't have a halftime. This is what they call the seventh inning stretch. To which Lindsay replied, no, this is obviously halftime. They're taking a break. People are leaving. It's halftime. And her dad, not being the type of guy to back down easily, said, Lindsay, I'm telling you, this is called the seventh inning stretch. To which Lindsay once again argued her point. And at this point, her exasperated dad told Lindsay that if she said another word about it being halftime, they were going to go home immediately, and then there would be consequences when they got home. As Sid tells the story, Lindsay sat down, folded her arms with a scowl on her face, thought for a few moments and said, well, if there were a halftime, this would be it. <laughs> Certainly asked her permission to tell that story this morning. Friends, we can shake our heads and laugh at the self-assured pride of a five-year-old. But what about when you see it in your life? It's not so cute as we get older, is it? Pride blinds us. It bends our focus inward. It damages our relationship with the Lord and with others. Friends, unfortunately, this is what we see in the prophet Jonah at the end of this story. But I hope today as we look at some of the pride and self-righteousness of Jonah, we will see it in contrast to the great mercy of our God. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah 4. Jonah 4, it's on page 775 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible is there for your use this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home and make it your Bible. That would give us a lot of joy. Now, this morning, we arrive at the conclusion of this short but really amazing story in the life of the prophet Jonah. Friends, we said from the very beginning that this story is not about Jonah. He's not the main character. The fish is not the main character. The main actor is the Lord. Many have recognized the main point of the entire book of Jonah to be really that climax in his prayer in the fish's belly that we see in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friends, in each chapter, we've seen God's salvation flash before our eyes. We saw it flash before our eyes to the sailors on the sea in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, to Jonah in the belly of the fish. And then it crescendoed in jaw-dropping mercy in chapter 3 to the entire city of Nineveh. Nineveh responded to Jonah's preaching with a, with a deep repentance for her own wickedness. A repentance that stretched really from the king's palace to the peasant's bungalow. The pagan Ninevites hit their knees together to plead for God's mercy, and God responded at the sight of Nineveh's repentance, chapter 3, verse 10 says that the Lord mercifully relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, given the flow of the story so far, 
What we expect to see next, I think, is what? Is Jonah thanking God for the success of his street preaching ministry, right? We expect to see something like the prayer he prayed from within the fish's belly, only this time praising the Lord for his saving action toward Nineveh. The wicked have turned to the Lord. This is a miracle. Friends, if this type of thing happened with one of our supported workers, one of our missionaries, you know what I think we'd do? We'd call a special praise service dedicated to thanking God for such a mighty act of the Spirit. Surely that's how Jonah would respond, right? Well, let's read together Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much, much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, title credit for the sermon today goes to our brother Casey Elson, one of our interns. Uh, we've been studying Jonah together, doing sermon worksheets. Uh, Casey's sermon worksheet Last week, it was titled, The Unrighteousness of Self-Righteousness. I said, Casey, I'm using that. Thank you very much for that boost. Here's the main idea, I think, of Jonah 4. Our self-righteous pride is a ridiculous contradiction to the Lord's mercy. Our self-righteous pride is a ridiculous contradiction to the Lord's mercy. I worded it like that because you almost can't help but laugh at Jonah's foolishness. In fact, as we read this chapter last night uh, after dinner as a family, my daughter Hadley laughed out loud at God's question to Jonah, do you well to, to be angry? Like, no duh, Jonah. Easy answer, no. You, you, you pity a, a plant? What? Jonah is a, a walking illustration of judgmentalism and self-righteousness. And by the end of the chapter, we see just how foolish he really is. Two points this morning, mirroring these, the two sections of text, I believe. Number one, the angry prophet. We see that in verses one to four. Number two, in contrast, the compassionate God. 
These two points mirror God's questions at the end of each section. In verse 4, the Lord asked Jonah about his anger. And then in, in verse 11, the Lord asked Jonah about his compassion to Nineveh. Beloved, as much as we can learn this morning, and I hope we will from Jonah's poor response, I pray that when we leave this morning, when we head out the doors this morning and go to our homes, I hope that our minds won't be fixed on what a lousy prophet Jonah was, but instead on how stunningly merciful and compassionate and gracious our God is. So much so that we, that we cultivate in our lives and in our church a passion to reflect God's heart of mercy to others. Let's look at this first point in the first four verses, the angry prophet. As shocking as God's mercy to Nineveh was, I think Jonah's response to it all was even more shocking. Verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Friends, Nineveh repented, God relented, and now Jonah resented what the Lord did. But it displeased Jonah. It's kind of a really a soft translation of what it really means. It literally means that the Lord's mercy to Jonah was a great evil. It was a great evil to him. It's not that Jonah was merely confused or even disappointed by the Lord's actions. He considered what the Lord did deeply wrong. Jonah had set himself against the Lord. He had really regressed back into his rebellion. As soon as God's wrath his anger was quenched. Jonah's anger was kindled. He was furious at what the Lord had done. We, we get an idea of why in verse 2. Verse 2 says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So for the first time, the author pulls back the curtain on what Jonah's mindset was when he ran from the Lord in chapter 1. Jonah says, I, I knew you might pull something like this. I knew that you might show mercy to these scumbags. That's why I ran from you in the first place. And now my suspicion is vindicated. You're being merciful to a people who ought to suffer your wrath. Let's remember once again why Jonah might think this way. Who were the Ninevites? Well, Nineveh, again, friends, is basically the, the capital of Assyria, one of the world's superpowers at the time. Assyria had harassed Israel in the past, and it would again be the instrument of God's judgment toward Israel in the future. Assyria invaded the northern kingdom and took God's people into exile in 722 B.C. I think it's more likely than not Jonah had run the math. He knew that God's mercy to Assyria might turn out in judgment for Israel. Jonah did not understand how God could uphold his covenant promises to his people while at the same time showing mercy to his people's enemies. How could this be? How could God be just to Israel and yet merciful to Assyria? How could God show people outside the covenant the same type of mercy that he had promised to people within the covenant? The issue really is very much theological for Jonah, isn't it? But friends, it's far more serious than an intellectual theological debate. Jonah was in total opposition to God in this matter. His heart was poisoned by pride. Instead of rejoicing, Jonah fumed. 
Instead of praising God at, at what he had done, Jonah sulked. So confident was Jonah that he was right and God was wrong that he takes dead aim at God's revealed character. In verse 2, Jonah quotes Exodus 34, 6, nearly verbatim. It, it's, a, it's a pivotal uh, passage of the Old Testament that the new, or excuse me, the Old Testament authors quote quite often. It's foundational for our understanding of the Lord. Our call to worship this morning from Psalm 145 is, is one of those places that uses Exodus 34, 6. The Lord revealed himself to Moses after Israel's idolatry at Sinai. Do you remember that? God relented of his wrath. And then he passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Instead of aligning himself with God's revealed character, Jonah weaponizes God's character against him to justify his own rebellion. It's like Jonah uses the Bible, friends, to excuse his disobedience and to prop up his own sense of rightness. I know better than you, Lord. I know you're this way. That's why I ran. And now I've been proven right. What you're doing, Lord, is deeply wrong. Oh, beloved, let this grotesque picture of Jonah's pride function like a spiritual defibrillator that shocks your heart back into spiritual rhythm. This is not how we ought to approach the Bible. It's not how we ought to study theology. Friends, if we, if we study the scripture and we read theology and what comes out on the other side is, is haughtiness toward others with different views or an elevated sense of our own importance or a, a lack of mercy toward a certain group of people, we can be sure we have not understood or applied this scripture in the way that the Lord intended it. Theology is meant to produce in us deep humility. There's an old fisherman's prayer that reads, Oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. It seems especially fitting for the story of Jonah, doesn't it? That's the way that we ought to approach the scripture. God, you're so vast. There are certainly bound to be things that I don't totally understand. Surely there are aspects of your person that are, that are mysterious, that I can't quite get my hands around. And even the things that I think I understand that reveal you, oh, Lord, they reveal a God so infinite in his greatness that the universe to, to you, Lord, is like a piece of lint. Surely the knowledge of such a God ought to fill our hearts with humility and deflate our sense of self-importance. One author said it like this, whenever we read the Bible in order to say, aha, I'm right, Whenever we read it to feel righteous and wise in our own eyes, we are using the Bible to make ourselves into fools. And worse, since the Bible says the mark of fools is to be wise in their own eyes. In other words, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we are misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, and encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. Beloved, the enemy would like nothing more than for you to study theology and yet feel haughty 
in your knowledge. He would like nothing more for you to be blinded by your own self-righteousness through the study of the word. He would like nothing more for our church to fight to prove our rightness. Oh, he'd be delighted for us to, to pursue theological correctness if it meant we cultivated a disdain for other Christians who don't think and, and believe like we do. Oh, don't get me wrong. Right theology matters. Sound doctrine is vitally important. We're going to see that even next week as we get into 1 Timothy. It's vitally important for the health of a church. But you know what should accompany our pursuit of theological precision? A pursuit of theological humility. What should arise from our hearts as we learn more of God and delve into the gospel is, oh, who am I that I should know such a God? Here's the thing. Jonah was totally fine for the Lord to be true to his character to Israel. Jonah was, was thrilled when God displayed his saving mercy to him when the Lord saved him from drowning in the sea. But tragically, friend, Jonah's experience of God's mercy had not penetrated it into the crevices of his soul. He had no interest in a God who would show that same type of mercy to people like the Ninevites. You know, I can't say this with absolute certainty, but based on his pride and anger, it seems like Jonah felt to some degree that the mercy God had showed him, well, it was deserved. When God rescued him from the gates of death, perhaps Jonah reasoned, whether intentionally or not, that God was predisposed to show this type of mercy to him because of maybe Jonah's previous work for God as a prophet, or his pedigree, or his Israelite ethnicity. But Nineveh, those pagans, those Gentiles, those enemies, all they deserve is condemnation. Beloved, hear this. Jonah was filled to the brim with pride, and it had drained his heart of mercy. His pride was, was evidenced in a moral disdain for the very people to whom God had just extended mercy. His heart is so calloused. It's stunning. You know, at the beginning... At the beginning of, of Jonah, Jonah's actions remind us of the prodigal son. Some have called him the prodigal prophet. He ran and then he returned to the Lord. But now, now that the Lord has shown mercy to Nineveh, Jonah's acting like the older brother in the parable. He's now become the Pharisaical prophet, full of pride and disdain for the mercy towards sinners. Our friends, we... Human beings in our fallenness are experts in this. We arrogate to ourselves worth and value and superiority because of our ethnicity or our skin color or our total wealth bottom line or our society status or a million other things. And as we lift up ourselves in pride, we treat others around us as subhuman because they're not like we are. We church folk can do this too. In our pride, we, we rationalize a heart void of compassion for certain types of people as holding the line for truth. And we justify sinful anger in the name of righteous indignation. Oh, friends, brothers and sisters, let's see Jonah's example and be sufficiently warned. Jonah loved God so long as God acted the way that Jonah wanted him to. Jonah didn't love God for who God had revealed himself to be. Jonah wanted God to act like him. 
Jonah wanted God to love people that Jonah loved and to hate people that Jonah hated and to treat with justice people that Jonah wanted treated with justice. Jonah wanted a God in his own image. Friends, this type of of a self-exalting, self-justifying spirit may feel good in the moment. It may feel so gratifying to you, but it's the way of misery. Just look at where it took Jonah in verse 3. Look at what he says. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Here's how sick Jonah's soul was. Here's how self-absorbed his worldview was. He preferred death to a life in a world where Israel's enemies were pardoned by Israel's God. It's stunning. Some commentators think that Jonah's death wish here is really a kind of a a passive-aggressive ultimatum to force God to choose between Jonah and Nineveh. Either destroy me or destroy them. You choose, God. I agree. I think that's what's happening. That's what's happening. I think that's exactly what Jonah was doing because why? Verse 5 says that Jonah went outside the city to see what happened to it. He still hoped God would change his mind and bring down judgment on Nineveh after all. I think it's likely that in asking the Lord to die, he was using his life as a bargaining chip against Nineveh. Here's how deep Jonah had sunk in the mire of his pride. Just think about how Jonah compares to earlier instances in the Old Testament. Think about other times where the Lord's wrath was about to fall. Maybe like when when God threatened to destroy Sodom. What did Abraham do? Abraham put his life on the line in pleading with God to withhold his judgment for the sake of a certain number of, of righteous people in Sodom. Moses did the same thing. He put his life on the line when he begged God to pardon Israel for for their idolatry of worshiping the golden calf. They put their life on the line to plead for God's mercy. Jonah puts his life on the line when pleading for God's judgment. Abraham and Moses were intercessors. Jonah was an indicter. Instead of interceding before the judge, Jonah tried to assume the role of judge. You know, in response to Jonah's insolence, what do you expect the Lord to do here? What might you expect the Lord to do? Strike him down, right? But in mercy, he responds in verse 4 with with a simple question designed to probe Jonah's soul. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's a rhetorical question. Jonah knew the answer, so he didn't respond. Friend, I wonder if you find yourself this morning with a bone to pick in your heart regarding God's purposes for you or for his, about his purposes in this world. If God loved me, he wouldn't have let X, Y, Z happen in my life. If God were merciful, he would not have taken someone so precious to me. If God cared, then this injustice wouldn't be happening in our country right now. If God were truly righteous, then he would judge the wickedness around us and those who commit such things. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful. There's a reason why he, not you, sits on the throne of the universe. There's a reason why he, not you, holds the gavel of eternal justice in his hand. Friends, there's a fine line, I think. I think this is not the main point of this verse, but I think it's helpful to note there's a fine line between godly lament and sinful anger. Godly lament cries out to the Lord for mercy and justice because of suffering and pain. Sinful anger accuses God in the midst of it. Sinful anger assumes that you know best. Godly lament understands that you do not. Why, Lord, very well may honor God's purpose. No, Lord, honors yours. Godly lament fundamentally at the deepest level believes God is in the right. Sinful anger thinks you are. Beloved, did Jonah do well to be angry? Indeed not. And neither do we in our own self-absorbed ways. So what's the antidote? What's the antidote to the drift of our hearts toward pride and self-righteousness? As I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, it seems like the Sunday school answer. But friends, the answer is the gospel. It is the gospel. You and I need daily reminders of the glory of God the infinite greatness of God, the gravity of our sin, and the the crucifixion of the Son of God in our place. We need to be reminded on the regular that all we deserve is hell. And anything that we've received other, other than hell is sheer mercy, let alone the death of the Son of God in our place to take our hell for us. Beloved, the gospel rightly applied to our hearts, you know what it does? You know what it's going to do in your life if you delve deeply into the message, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, and you begin to understand its implications for you? You know what it's going to do? It's going to suck the oxygen out of your heart that your pride needs to grow. Over time, the gospel will begin to form in us a deep humility as we realize the depth of our sin and the extent of God's grace to us in Christ. We sang it this morning. The hymn writer put it so well, forbid it, Lord. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. That's where we are. Moving on to the second part of Jonah 4, the compassionate God. That was providential. I like it. In verse 5, Jonah exited Nineveh and he camped out east of the city. He built a booth for himself, which is just some sort of a shelter uh, to block the direct rays of the sun. And Jonah sat under it, the text says, till he should see what what would become of the city. Again, friends, after Jonah, or excuse me, after the Lord had shown the Ninevites his great mercy, Jonah's heart still pines after justice. He camps out for what he hopes will be a front row seat for the, for the, oh, I shouldn't have written that word in the, the manuscript. 
I was going to say recapitulation. That was, I should have practiced that one ahead of time. (laughs) He camps out for what he hopes is a reprise. How about that? Of Sodom, where God wiped Sodom off the map. Even after his initial exchange with the Lord, Jonah's heart is unfeeling in its callousness. So what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord again takes Jonah through the school of suffering. And again, he uses his creation to do it. So you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, what did God do? God appointed, is what the the text says, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And here, verse 6, says the same thing. The Lord appointed, same word. He appointed a plant to grow over Jonah. And then verse 7 says that the Lord then appointed a worm to attack the plant. And then verse 8 says he appointed a scorching east wind. It's like the drumbeat of divine sovereignty. Appointed, 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 appointed. Friends, there's no doubt who's in control here. It's the sovereign Lord. It's the king of creation. He appoints enjoyable mercies like a plant for shade. And he appoints severe mercies like the worm and the wind. Let me summarize what's going on here. It is a tad confusing when when you read it. What you really need to understand is that The Lord designed this whole plant episode to be like an elaborate object lesson to expose Jonah's sin and God's own character. Through this object lesson, the Lord traps Jonah in his self-righteous hypocrisy, and he vindicates his decision to spare Nineveh. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Man, this is amazing. Despite Jonah's sin, despite his sin, God is still being merciful to him. The plant surely is a symbol of God's mercy to Jonah. Jonah's booth wasn't doing the trick, so the Lord caused some sort of gigantic plant to grow quickly over him. People speculate, what what type of plant was it? Best guess seems to be some, you know, like, like the castor oil plant that has the big leafy broad leaves, leafy broad leaves. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but we do know what the plant did. It provided shade over Jonah's head to save him from his discomfort. We're desert dwellers. We get it. We get it. The sun's hot, right? We've been in the unrelenting summer sun that bakes like an oven. Jonah didn't have a pool there east of Nineveh. We get it. Life was tough. Notice how he responded to the Lord's mercy. Verse 6 says that Jonah was exceedingly glad over the plant. You recognize that language? We should recognize it from verse 1, where Jonah was exceedingly displeased because of God's mercy. It's the same verb structure. You see what the author is showing us? When God extended mercy to Jonah's enemies, Jonah became angry. But when when, when Jonah was the recipient of God's mercy, he jumped for joy. Friends, self-righteousness, it breeds hypocrisy. It's by nature self-contradictory. It causes us to disdain the good of others while celebrating that same good to or in ourselves. It puts me, the self, at the center of the universe. It's by nature self-exalting. I think self-righteousness, friends, is a type of pride that is especially corrupt. It's not the type of pride that so much brags arrogantly that 
I'm better than you, but a more subtle pride that assumes that I deserve better than you. It's the anti-grace posture. This passage exposes Jonah's pride from several different angles. And I know we're kind of coming back to it, even though we covered it in the first section, but we're meant, I think, to just kind of sit in the ugliness of Jonah's pride and self-righteousness. Friends, here's a sobering reality. When we stop letting the gospel humble us, when we no longer stand amazed at the free and sovereign mercy of God to us, we are in danger of the Jonah syndrome. Friends, for, for some of you, the Lord has delivered you miraculously, mercifully from a life of, of serious sin. Whether it's sexual immorality or, or addiction or greed, I've, I've heard your testimonies. And, and maybe since you became a Christian, you've not gone back to that sin. You've not delved deeply back into that lifestyle. Praise God. The Spirit delivered you. Friend, for you, it may be that your temptation moving forward won't be so much to go back to those type of chains, but instead to lift up yourself in pride as if you had something to do with your deliverance. You silently take credit for your success. You subtly look down on those who still struggle. Slowly but surely, your heart has migrated from, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, to, oh God, I thank you like, that I'm not like that person. The Lord already has exposed Jonah as a hypocrite, but Jonah is blissfully unaware. He simply basks in the shade, sipping an umbrella drink in a lounge chair as he waits for Nineveh's demise. And so the Lord moves on to step two in this object lesson. Verse seven, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Whereas the plant symbolized God's mercy, the worm and the wind symbolized God's judgment. Again, reading last night, Hadley says, this is kind of like with Pharaoh back in Egypt. I was like, yeah, they're the plagues to Jonah in many ways. What's the point? Why would God grow the plant only to kill it? I think what's happening is that God is demonstrated in a vivid way that Jonah cannot forget his judgment prevailing over his mercy. Jonah, you want my judgment to prevail over my mercy to Nineveh? You want that? Okay. Well, let me let you experience what the withdrawal of my mercy is really like. On the heels of the worm, the Lord sent the wind. It's like a boxer's combo punch, one to the ribs and then an uppercut to the head. The Lord is getting Jonah's attention. The worm attacked the plant and the sun beat down. Literally, it attacked Jonah's head. Jonah is now completely exposed to God's justice. One commentator summed it up well. If Jonah wishes God to deal in strict justice with Nineveh, then he must be prepared to experience that strict justice himself. If, however, he wishes God to treat him mercifully, then he must be prepared to embrace the extension of God's mercy to others. But friends, Jonah's not there yet. Again, Jonah asks for permission to die. 
The first time, he said, I'd rather die than for Nineveh to experience your mercy. But this time, he says, he'd rather die than experience the withdrawal of mercy himself. You ever watched a a car crash in slow motion on YouTube or something like that? That's what this chapter feels like. It feels like the crash of Jonah's life in slow motion. Jonah is unrelentingly self-absorbed which sets things up perfectly for the reprise. Didn't write the big word in that time of the Lord's penetrating question in verse nine. Do you well? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I appreciate Jonah's honesty at the very least. Jonah is honest and he's once again steamed. The first time he was steamed at God's mercy to the Ninevites, now he's steamed at God's justice toward him. How could God be so capricious? How could he be so callous and uncaring, sort of remove the one good thing I had going for me? In his self-pity, Jonah grovels that he's angry enough to die. His life is in a death spiral. But again, the Lord intervenes. Look at verse 10 and 11. Here's really the whole point. Here's the whole point. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If Jonah pitied the plant... Should not the Lord pity Nineveh? The plant was entirely a gift of grace. Jonah didn't work for it. He didn't didn't plant it. He didn't tend it. He wasn't acquainted with it for long at all. And yet he threw a pity party in selfish anger when the Lord took it away. Jonah could not deal with the thought of losing out on God's mercy. And yet what Jonah wished on Nineveh the withdrawal of mercy the Lord performed on him. He let Jonah experience the justice that he wished for Nineveh. The mercy Jonah so craves for himself is the exact thing he had shown the Ninevites. Jonah's heart, it's just wrapped around the axle of his pride. It yearns selfishly for the plant the Lord's heart lovingly yearned for Nineveh. The word translated pity there in verse 11 or 10 and 11. In the Hebrew, it literally means to have tears in one's eyes. It's the root of the word. It's the word that evokes a deep and moving compassion for something or someone. Friends, it it tells us The Lord's decision to spare Nineveh was not a cold decision. It was not a sterile transaction. Oh no, the Lord pitied the Ninevites. They lived in moral confusion. The Lord says they don't even know their right hand from their left. It's not that the Lord was excusing their wickedness. Rather, the Ninevites' ignorance of what God's word was was part of what moved his heart in mercy toward them. Friends, I've spent the majority of this sermon focusing on on Jonah's proud, self-serving heart. And certainly, again, that's instructive for us. 
But at the end of the day, the book of Jonah is meant to draw our attention to God's heart. We shouldn't be asking the question, first and foremost, what's Jonah like? We should be asking, what is God like? The Lord here forcefully invites Jonah to consider who he is. The God of compassions for all people. For people so wicked and so far from him as the Ninevites. In fact, the Lord reveals here that his mercy extends even to the cattle of Nineveh. You know, animals clearly are not as valuable as humans, but they are part of his creation that elicits his care and concern. What God is saying to Jonah is, I am weeping and grieving over this city. Why aren't you? If you're my prophet, why are you not moved to mercy like I am? Jonah, in many ways, is the anti-missionary. He was a failure as a prophet. But friends, his shortcomings remind us how much the world needed a true prophet. Our Lord Jesus. Jonah's stony heart didn't weep over Nineveh. But Jesus' heart wept over the very city and the very people who would kill him. Jesus knew that the religious leaders of Jerusalem would deliver him to the Romans to be crucified. And yet listen to the words of Luke 19. It's the week of his passion, the week of his crucifixion. And when Jesus drew near the city and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It's Luke 19, 41 and 42. Friends, even on the cross, the mob mocked Jesus. They jeered at him. The Pharisees looked on in smug satisfaction. And what was Jesus' response? What came out of his mouth in that moment? He didn't call down a legion of angels to annihilate them in a breath as he could have done. Instead, the cry that rose from his heart was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Friends, this type of mercy should astound us. It should humble us. It should inform our response to sinners around us, even within this body and certainly around us in the world. Jesus Christ is the weeping God of Jonah 4 in human form. That's who he is. Ultimately, the failure of Jonah points us to to the success of Jesus. Jonah went outside the city to wait for God's judgment to fall on it. Jesus went outside the city and on the cross, he bore the judgment of all who would turn from their sin to him. Outside the city, Jonah hoped for condemnation. Outside the city, Jesus accomplished our salvation. And Jesus didn't merely weep for us, did he? He died for us. See, friends, the cross... It does two things simultaneously. The cross declares how horrific our sin is. It's so serious that the incarnate God had to die to satisfy the Father's righteous wrath. And yet the cross also declares just how staggeringly merciful our God is. That he would give his son to absorb our punishment so that we might receive his grace. What do you think? Do you think Jonah learned his lesson? Do you think the Lord ever got through to him? The text doesn't say, does it? 
But I suspect the fact that we even have this story in the canon of Scripture means that Jonah was willing to tell it for the instruction of God's people throughout the ages. How else would we know Jonah's intimate prayer from the fish's belly in chapter 2? How else would we know his angry tirade here in chapter 4? It seems likely that once again the Lord's severe mercy penetrated Jonah's heart and humbled him. It gives me so much hope about my own prideful heart. It humbled him so much that Jonah was willing to put into writing what a fool he had been for the benefit of readers like us. It seems as if Jonah finally understood just what type of man he was, a sinner no better than Nineveh, equally deserving of their judgment, yet an equal recipient of their mercy. But this ending really is so strange, isn't it? (laughs) It is so strange. It's a cliffhanger. It feels like there should be a chapter 5, but there's not. The Lord's question to Jonah simply echoes in our ears. And then the screen fades to black. And I think that's the point. We're meant to sit and to meditate on God's question to Jonah. One author said, it is as if God shoots the arrow of a question at Jonah, but Jonah disappears. And we realize that the arrow is aimed at us. Brothers and sisters, does your heart throb with the mercy of God for all peoples? For the boss who's treated you poorly? For the family member who's hurt you? For the neighbor whose politics you can't stand? For the illegal immigrant living down the street? For the gay couple in the booth the next booth over in the restaurant for the homeless man begging at the intersection, whether that's real or not, for the Muslims of Islamabad and the atheists of Beijing and the Hindus of Mumbai and the Buddhists of Bangkok, for the nominal Christians or Roman Catholics of the Southwest Valley, Does your heartbeat pulse with compassion for them? Or are we too busy pitying our personal plant to pay any attention? Salvation belongs to the Lord, yes and amen. To God belongs the glory and salvation from start to finish. But here's what the book of Jonah reveals. This statement isn't just a creed. It's a mission statement. The mercy of God to us is designed to compel the mercy of God through us. We're meant to join this merciful God to take this message of salvation to the world. And may God help us as we do that. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would humble us and guard us, guard our hearts from what we see in your prophet Jonah. 
And yet we thank you for your mercy to him. We thank you for your mercy to us and letting us read this story and be warned and see how it contrasts with your great mercy to us, which we know finds its apex. It finds its final fulfillment in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would compel our hearts with the gospel. Suffocate our pride, we pray. Oh, I pray that you would humble us on a daily basis and that it would move us out on mission to all peoples. Oh, Father, the story of Jonah has, has shown us that it's possible to do ministry, to do things for you, but not have your mercy moving us at the same time. Oh, God, we ask for grace from your spirit to unite both that godly motivation with godly actions. Uh, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would use us as a bright and burning light here in the Southwest Valley to demonstrate the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends and family. And then we would extend this, this gospel across the world as we seek to support and care for missionaries who are doing this work abroad. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.